everyone, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 8th of July 2015, and it is my great pleasure once again to welcome to the programme Dr. Graham McQueen, who kindly joined us back last year, I think it was in October, somewhere around then, to talk about his new book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, which I will repeat here is an excellent book, an important part of any concerned person's reading list and uh, of course I recommend anyone who is new to The Mind Renewed um, or perhaps just didn't catch that interview at the time to go back through the 2014 archive and listen to that interview. But of course we're going to be speaking about a different subject today. Dr McQueen has a PhD in Buddhist studies from Harvard. He taught for 30 years in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Canada, where he was founding director in 1989 of McMaster's Centre for Peace Studies. He has co-directed projects in four war zones and written articles and contributed to several books in peace research. He has also written several peer-reviewed articles on 9-11 anomalies, served on the steering committee of the Toronto hearings into 9-11, and is a member of the Consensus 9-11 panel, and is also co-editor with Kevin Ryan of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. Dr. McQueen, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to come back on the program. It's great to speak with you again. Oh, you're quite welcome, Julian. Thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to be speaking with you. Now, as I said, we're going to be discussing a different subject today, and that's your research into, well, an aspect of 9-11 studies that I think hasn't had as much attention as perhaps it deserves, um, specifically your research into eyewitness evidence of explosions in the Twin Towers on 9-11. Now, my interest in this was sparked by seeing your presentation on this subject at the Toronto hearings in 2011, and uh, you kindly sent me that script of the presentation, so I'll be basing many of my questions on you know what's written there but before we get underway with that I know of course we said something about your academic work during our last interview but um, obviously many will not have heard that particular program so would you mind just giving us a brief reminder of what the academic discipline is that you you've been working in peace studies right um, so as you correctly said I began in what was at the time at Harvard called the field of comparative religion studied history of religion, uh, especially my main area of expertise was the study of ancient Buddhist texts, and I studied them in several languages. I was always fascinated ever since I was quite young with what I would call primary sources, getting back to the original texts in whatever language they were, they were in, whether it was Pali or Sanskrit or Chinese or whatever. Of course, I also was interested in... Um, Buddhism from an ethical point of view, a philosophical point of view, but my main area of expertise was really texts. So anyway, I was hired into uh, my original university, the place I started off in Canada. So I came back from the U.S. to Canada, and I taught in the department. And for the most part, quite happily, it was a good department, but um, I became very concerned about the direction of the world, especially the end of the 70s and the early 80s, the uh, growth of a new Cold War, the dangers of nuclear war, the, the way uh, Latin America was being ravaged by war as well, and a huge wave of torture, all these things. I couldn't settle down to uh, write about religion and history and so on in the midst of all this. So I became an active member of the peace movement in my country and then joined with other people to start a peace studies program and a center for peace studies at my university, McMaster University. And I became the founding director of that center in 1989. 
and went on from there. Um, peace and conflict studies, as it's usually called, or just peace studies, has been around since the 1960s. Some would say the 1950s. One of the founders, Johann Galtung, began writing in this area in the 1950s, actually, and um, is still going strong. Peace studies is a rather practical discipline. You try and work out what is war, what is peace, but also how do we get from one to the other. And so I became involved in numerous field projects in which we tried to help people while also trying to resist and oppose warlike tendencies in our own society. It always seemed to me that it's, um, it's very bad policy to go running off doing so-called humanitarian work in war zones here and there and everywhere and then completely ignoring the war makers in your own country. Yeah. You know, so I, I tried to do both. If you look at my life as a whole, I've spent more time opposing and protesting and resisting and so on in my own society than I have in dashing around here and there. And I think that's the way it ought to be. So I told my students on 9-11, I was teaching some big courses, that not only was there a lot of death on that day, but that they, they could expect, they could be sure that there would be far more death and destruction in response to 9-11. And I even gave them several hypotheses as to how much. Because uh, the, the ratio, when the U.S. decides to attack someone fighting with it, the ratio is pretty scary. Um, at the very lowest, it's 1 to 20, but often it's 1 to 1,000 or higher. So I knew there'd be huge numbers of people uh, abroad that would die. And, and, of course, that was correct. But it didn't occur to me to really scrutinize 9-11 and really try and figure out basic questions like who did it for a couple of years. Or to put it differently, it occurred to me, but I felt I was too busy opposing various invasions, you know, Afghanistan and then Iraq to take time out to really look at this event. It wasn't until 2005 that I did what I should have done years before and began to look into 9-11. And I was pretty shocked by how easy it was, once I put my mind to it, to see that the official story was clearly false. Yes, and that's the problem, isn't it, with so many, is that business of actually putting your mind to it. Because so often when people say they do actually concentrate on the information that's there, it becomes an overwhelming case. But with so many people, it's difficult to get across that barrier of, well, such a taboo subject. That's correct. I think we have a kind of filter in our mind. We hear things, we cannot, we don't have the time to explore them all. So there's a little process that goes on that says something like, is this something I want to pursue or not? And there could be a number of things that prevent us from pursuing it. It could be that it sounds just too far out, too ridiculous, which is what my views on 9-11 appear to be to some people. Or it could be that it's just too scary. Sometimes we just can't bear the thought that this could be true. And I'm, I'm no different from others. I'm aware that there are topics that I don't explore deeply because emotionally it's too devastating. And so I think both of those things are at work and people refusing to look into 9-11. Yeah. And I'm going to say now, actually, that uh, looking into this myself and interviewing people, I don't actually find it always easy to come back to this subject time and again, precisely because of that feeling that, you know, it's not really the socially acceptable thing to be doing. There's something very uncomfortable. And I think that's quite the opposite of what 
people often think about it that it's you know people who really want to do sensationalist things and certainly as far as I'm concerned that is not the case I do find it quite difficult approaching this at times um, can we then turn to your research specifically into eyewitness evidence of explosions in the World Trade Center buildings one and two on 9/11 now as I say I get the impression that this is a somewhat unusual angle of research into this 9-11 event. Certainly not aware of many people looking into this perspective. So perhaps the best place to start would be, could you give us an outline of the main purpose of this research? Yes, well, to put it in, in the broadest possible terms, if the Twin Towers were subjected to controlled demolition on 9-11, as opposed to being sort of knocked down by the planes, which is the official story, or I should say the official story is that they were damaged by the planes and that there were also raging fires and that the two combined to cause this catastrophic collapse. If, on the contrary, they were brought down through controlled demolition, then this could only have been done with the cooperation of insiders. So to use the standard term, it means that 9-11 would have had to have been an inside job. And that means the official story of 9-11 is a fraud, it's a lie, and it means the foundations of the global war on terror are completely rotten. It means the global war on terror is a fraud root and branch, and I believe that's the case. So eyewitness evidence is just one form of evidence, but it's an important form, not in any sense outmoded, out of date. It's not a kind of evidence that we can possibly afford to overlook. So I decided that I would concentrate on it and see what it had to tell us about the destruction of those towers on 9-11. Do you think your background in textual analysis actually fed into your interest in this area, looking at oral traditions and things like that? There's no doubt about it. You know, some people, of course, so-called debunkers, like to make fun of us all from one point of view or another. And some people say, oh, you know, look at him, he's a... They like to call me a theologian, by the way, <laughs> when they want to debunk me. I'm not sure why that is. I'm, I'm not actually... I, I would say that would be to your credit, but then I'm looking at it from a particular point of view, yes. <laughs> well, of course, David Ray Griffin is a theologian and uh, and philosopher and has run rings <laughs> around these. But anyway, uh, I'm not, in fact, a theologian. And... Um, I've been pretty careful in what I write, especially about the collapse, or I should say the destruction of the buildings at the World Trade Center. I've been careful not to pretend that I'm an architect or a physicist or anything. Where I deal with issues like that, I'm careful. I don't go beyond high school physics, uh, or I include someone else in the research with me. But the work we're talking about now, eyewitness testimony, plays to my strengths, not to my weaknesses. You don't need to know any physics or any <laughs> anything about architecture to go through the roughly 12,000 pages of oral testimony from the New York firefighters. Uh, what you do have to know is how to analyze texts, how to figure out what the information is that's most useful how you're going to get it, how you're going to tabulate it, how you're going to make the case, what else you'll look for in order to have a strong hypothesis, and so on. So um, I, I feel you're right. It uh, plays to my strength, and it was something that I knew I could do and that I would actually enjoy. 
you know, sit me down with a mass of texts and I'm happy. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as you say, it is a mass, isn't it? You talk there about ten to 12,000 pages of this oral history that's available. Um, is that the main source that you have, or are there other things that you were also looking at? Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about that particular set of documents. Uh, well, my work on the eyewitness testimony really had two phases. The first phase began in 2005. That was just the time when I was starting to seriously look into this 9-11 thing. And along with all the other things I was reading, I read an article called uh, Explosive Testimony by David Ray Griffin, who was an excellent researcher. And it had to do with this body of texts, which I had never heard of before. Uh, They're officially called the World Trade Center Task Force Interviews. We normally call them just the um, oral histories of the uh, Fire Department of New York. They were compiled not long after 9-11 because of the uh, fire commissioner of New York who thought it would be important to have an oral history of what happened that day. So members of the FDNY, the Fire Department of New York, were interviewed, uh, usually by their own officers in office buildings of the FDNY. And these were tape recorded, and then they were transcribed, collected, and uh, it took a lawsuit by the New York Times to get them released to the public. And after that was successful, the New York Times put this large collection of documents on its website. I haven't checked recently to see if they're still there, but of course, I and many other people downloaded them as quickly as we could in case they should disappear. Mm. So the the first piece of work I did on the eyewitness testimony was simply to go through, first of all, work out a kind of methodology. How am I going to deal with this material? And then just to go through it all from beginning to end and mm. see what I found. I didn't know what I'd find. It was quite possible at that point when I was just a beginning 9-11 researcher that what I would find would uh, convince me that 9-11 skeptics were wrong. Mm -hmm. It's quite possible I could have found that the official narrative was amply supported Mm -hmm. by this material. I mean, just think about it. Quite apart from explosions in the Twin Towers, just think about how rich this is. We're talking about roughly 500 men and women who were there on the scene on 9-11, who were caught up in this thing. Some of them barely escaped with their lives. And there they are, giving first-hand testimony about it all. Anybody who wants to know what happened in New York on that day must realize this is a a boundlessly important set of documents, regardless of what your aims are. So I thought, if I'm going to be a 9-11 researcher... This is like a gold mine. Yes. So these are oral histories from firefighters and is it medical professionals as well there at the time? Yes, mm-hmm. that's correct. They worked for the fire department of New York and medics and doctors are included and their names are given and uh, details usually like when they got there and where they were standing Of course, we depend upon their interviewers for this, but there's a lot of information. It's very rich. And you say this was collected very early on. I mean, on the document or on your your paper, it says uh, between October 2001 and January 2002. So that's very early. That's right. Uh, Over that period, all these people were interviewed. So that I wrote that up in an article that was published in the Journal of 9-11 Studies. You can find it online. It's called 118 Witnesses. Then the second phase of my study was a few years later when we were preparing the Toronto hearings on 9-11. 
it was decided that I would give one of the talks. So I looked at the research I had done since that early stage and decided it was time for a round two. So the first collection had 118 people from the fire department of New York. And now in the second phase, I added a group, smaller group of other people, so that altogether my number of eyewitnesses was now 156. And the people I added were mostly either police officers from the Port Authority Police Department in New York City, or they were reporters. There are a few others, civilians near the buildings, but mostly those two categories. And uh, they turn out to be important additions. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that interests me, kind of from a philosophical perspective, if you like, is the question of the value of eyewitness evidence uh, in such an investigation. In fact, you do address this early on in your presentation because you say that you often encounter an objection to eyewitness evidence uh, that it it should be pretty much dismissed because it's generally thought to be soft evidence. It's uh, untrustworthy, it's unreliable. In fact, actually, I have to say that, you know, I was attracted to this line of investigation that you've been conducting, uh, actually from the point of view of New Testament studies, because I've so often found reading scholars that, you know, eyewitness testimony is is taken extremely seriously within that that subject, not not at all considered to be useless, you know. So what is your reaction to that kind of objection? It's just soft, it shouldn't be taken seriously. Yes, well, I don't take that objection seriously. (laughs) It's a soft objection. (laughs) Mm. Uh, I, I don't know what the right word is to use for eyewitness evidence, but uh, some years ago I thought to myself, it's not soft, but it's also not hard in the sense that um, physical evidence is, so what do we call it? And I decided to call it tough evidence. It's um, diverse, it's messy, it's sort of like a, wee, a yard full of weeds. Um, it's sometimes um, off course, sometimes wrong. After all, people sometimes misperceive, sometimes misremember, and sometimes lie. So it has all kinds of problems. But just like with the weeds, if there's enough of them, they're not easy to get rid of. They're tough. You cannot dismiss eyewitness evidence. And, and I don't know of any serious scholar who has studied it in the social sciences who does say you can dismiss it, even those who are who are trying to say that the courts need to be more careful in assessing it. Careful by all means. Let's let's work out criteria for assessing it. But dismiss it? No, nobody says that. That's absurd. I guess some people might think that it's equivalent to hearsay, but it really isn't, is it? It's, it's a lot more definite than that. Depends what you mean by hearsay. The term sometimes means just uh, anything that isn't said in court. Well, of course, this hasn't, hasn't been said in court, so from that point of view, it's hearsay. But if by hearsay you mean that it's uh, gossip or it, it's been handed on, you know, as if I say, well, Tom told me that he saw the buildings you know, being blown up, uh, that's hearsay in the sense that I didn't see them being blown up myself. I'm merely relaying what Tom said. It's not hearsay in that sense. All the 156 eyewitnesses here are people who directly perceive this themselves. I was just about to say that I was looking into something else yesterday and I ended up reading a quite detailed eyewitness account of the Lisbon earthquake of November 1st, 1755. This just traumatized Europe. Um, the city of Lisbon was almost entirely destroyed. But anyway, here, here I am reading about it and there was this just brilliant eyewitness testimony from 1755. This man calmly and precisely details 
his own experience, you know, feeling his house start to shake, and then the whole upper story comes down, he escapes, he runs off to the riverside where there are a lot of people, kind of half undressed, kneeling in prayer, terrified out of their minds. Um, they think they're safe by the river, but this huge wave comes up because, of course, the earthquake was followed by a tsunami, and so on and so forth. So you're not going to find a historian who will say, oh, well, that's just soft evidence, so it's meaningless. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. This is gold. I mean, how else would you find out these things? I mean, there's physical evidence of certain sorts, but they it doesn't give you what you get from this account. You absolutely do not dismiss it. Now, what you do, of course, whether it's Lisbon 1755 or whether it's New Testament or whether, and each of these, by by the way, each of these bodies of evidence will have its own unique characteristics and weaknesses and so on. But what you do is, of course, you work out criteria to check it. You always cross-check. You, you look for corroboration. You look for contradiction. And you do this both by looking at other eyewitness testimony and also at completely different forms of evidence. You look at physical evidence. You look at representational evidence, by which I mean recordings, audio, video, infrared, seismic, photographic. We have all of that material for 9-11. So we have plenty of ways in which we can check our eyewitness evidence. So what, how did you actually do that in your research? You know, those cases of people perhaps not remembering something, uh, mistaking it or making it up or being influenced by others. How did you manage to sort of filter those things out? Well, when you've got 156 eyewitnesses and when you find that none of them has anything to gain by saying that they heard or felt explosions in the towers... It's pretty hard to question. In fact, very few people have questioned the motives of these particular eyewitnesses. You have to remember that even as early as the uh, time when the firefighters were being interviewed, more official government sources were pushing quite hard a different line. They were saying, no, 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 it wasn't explosions. Um, This was a natural collapse. And they had a particular theory called the pancake theory that they were pushing at that time. And the firefighters knew that, and they knew that what they perceived, or at least a great many of them knew it because they actually mentioned it in some of their accounts, they knew that that this went against the current theories. And some of them basically take the position, well, I don't care, this is what I perceived. Others backtrack and say things like, well, to tell you the truth, at the time, It looked like explosions to me, but I guess it turns out I was wrong. So in other words, different people react differently in these situations, but it's clear that what I call the explosion hypothesis was extremely common on 9-11 and in the days thereafter. So if you're going to claim that people lied to take that particular case, really the burden of proof is on those who want to claim that these 156 people have something to gain by it. I think they had quite a bit to lose, uh, but very little to gain. So then we go on to other things. Did they misperceive? Did they misremember? Well, we've got a database of 156 people. We can certainly compare one with the other. And I find in general they corroborate each other. After you've read 12,000 pages of this material, you do see mistakes. You do see cases where somebody's obviously got something wrong. For example, when the buildings begin to collapse, or rather it starts just before visible signs of collapse, there are huge sounds given off by the towers. 
and it's like an enormous roar and the ground begins to shake. This actually begins before they start to come down and then it continues as they come down. Well, many people, uh, quite a few people were misled and actually thought there was another plane hitting the building. That's how loud it was. When they heard the roar, they thought it was a plane coming very close. And when you heard this big, huge boom, they thought it was the plane hitting. But it's possible after you read a lot of these um, sources, which I've done, to be able to sort out which times they were actually witnessing one of the two planes and which times it was actually the beginning of the collapse. So what I'm saying is, sure, they make mistakes sometimes. And quite often with this database, you can sort that out. You can check against what other people are saying about the times they give as to when this happened. You can sort it out. So are there errors? Sure. But we can catch a lot of them. In terms of misremembering, as you pointed out earlier, most of these firefighters were interviewed quite close to the event. And this is another case where the reporters in my second gathering of eyewitness testimony are especially important. There's quite a few reporters who are caught, you know, on air, on TV, while this is happening. I mean, sometimes it's right after it's happened, but sometimes it's literally right while it's happening. So it really isn't a question of memory, or or at least if it is, it's, it's a matter of a couple of seconds. It's like when the guy says, huge explosion right now, we better run. Well, you know. Sure, sure. And we're, we're, I, I want to come to one or two of those uh, videos, actually, in a little yeah. bit. Uh, you mentioned in what you were saying there about the fact that many people on the day itself had a suspicion that this was controlled demolition that was going on here. Now, this goes completely against, of course, the popular notion that controlled demolition was an idea that was dreamt up later, you know, by pesky conspiracy theorists with their conspiracy mindset. Um, You say the evidence there, the the, the eyewitness evidence actually shows that a lot of people had this suspicion at the time. Oh, yes. It took me a while to realise how important this point was. I kind of tended to skim over it at first, but eventually I realised that It's a very common presupposition that people have that the obvious collapse hypothesis is that, well, the buildings were hit by planes, for heaven's sake, and then there were fires. So what kind of an idiot are you to come trailing along, maybe years later, dreaming up some hypothesis about people blowing it up? So from that point of view, it's quite important to emphasize that on the day of 9-11 itself, there were many, many people talking about explosions, There are many, many people who thought the buildings had been blown up. And of those people, some of them certainly thought it wasn't just explosions. It was explosives which had been intentionally planted in the building. So let me just give you one example. So this is New York firefighter Christopher Fenyo, and this is in the oral histories that I mentioned before. He's talking about a debate that started on the street uh, right near the Trade Center between 10 and 10.30 in the morning. In other words, one of the towers, the South Tower, has come down. The North Tower has not yet come down. This is what he says. At that point, a debate began to rage because the perception was that the building looked like it had been taken out with charges. End of quote. In other words, he's saying it looked like someone planted explosives. And he's talking about the South Tower. He then says, well, that debate ended pretty quickly because then the North Tower came down and we all had to run. But that's an example. And there are many, many cases, including major news media, 
you know, people on ABC News and everybody was talking about explosions. And uh, the, the hypothesis that these had been brought down intentionally with explosives was very common. And as I say, I've come to realize over the years that that's an important point. So I'm glad you brought it up. So when, in other words, when we talk about this hypothesis of controlled demolition, we're not trailing along afterwards with a conspiracy theory. We're emphasizing one of two hypotheses, both of which were articulated very early on 9-11. One was the explosion hypothesis and one was the non-explosion hypothesis. They were both there and they're both still there. You bring out five main examples to make this point in the paper. Can I just pick your brain about a couple of those examples? I mean, the first one we've already alluded to, which is uh, the N.J. Burkett uh, example. He's a reporter for ABC Television, and he's reacting to these collapses in the South Tower, first of all, and he says, uh, oh, a huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us, so we better get out of the way. And so they get out of the way. So he uses the word explosion there. Now, of course, we have the advantage of being actually able to see and hear what he's experiencing. And when I look at it and listen to it, it doesn't seem obviously, obviously, to be an explosion in the sense of pre-planted explosives. I mean, I, I think it could be reasonably interpreted just from what I see in here as a sudden mass ejection of debris as a consequence of the top part of the South Tower falling onto the lower part. He refers to it as, a, as an explosion, but how significant is that? Might that just be the word that's available to him to express what he's seeing? I, you know, I'm just thinking, what other word would he use? Does it necessarily mean that he thinks it is an explosion in the sense of pre-planted explosives? Oh, uh, certainly not. It doesn't mean that, that he thinks it's explosives. Um, it is, as you say, his spontaneous uh, comment as the event takes place. And it doesn't prove that it was an explosion, much less that it was pre-planted explosives. I'm pretty careful in the article. I don't say that his use of the term explosion means that it necessarily was. But here's the thing. If we have a great number of eyewitnesses, and as I say, this 156 is a very modest collection. There were certainly more than that. And they're using terms like explosion, bomb, blast. And not only are they talking about what they heard, they're in many cases describing what they saw and in many cases describing what they felt. Some of them were thrown through the air, right? So what do we do with that? Well, we do not ignore it. If all these people thought they were experiencing explosions, then we have to consider that as a hypothesis. And really, that was the main uh, purpose of my initial article, was to say nobody can exclude the explosion hypothesis once they've seen all these witnesses. So could he have been wrong? Yes. Could he have been speaking informally? And could it have been a gravitational collapse with a huge amount of dust given off. Of course, of course, I would never draw the conclusion that it was an explosion just on the basis of this one fellow. Okay. Um, and the other one was your fifth example where you talk about the FBI's investigation into 9-11 being called Pent Bomb, the code word for it. And you ask the rhetorical question, and I'll quote you here, is it possible that when this name was assigned, someone in the FBI thought a bombing had taken place? So my question about this is, you know, let's assume for the sake of argument that the towers were indeed brought down by pre-planted explosives as a part of a state crime against democracy. OK, so on that hypothesis, I mean, how likely is it that the FBI would have been allowed 
to name their investigation Pent Bomb. I mean, wouldn't that have been judged to arouse public suspicion quite unnecessarily? Yeah, it's quite possible. But first of all, for your listeners, let me explain. Pent Bomb, as the code name for the uh, attacks uh, on 9-11, is spelt P-E-N-T-T-B-O-M, and it stands for Pentagon Twin Towers Bombing. And the reason why it's a very fishy kind of name, a peculiar name, is that according to the official narrative, as that narrative quickly gelled, there was no bombing. According to the official story, there was no bombing at the Pentagon, and there was no bombing in the Twin Towers. So therefore, I raised the question in the article, isn't that a peculiar name to use for the event? Now, I don't use it to prove that it was a bombing. Again, I would ask that people look, if they possibly can, at the original article itself. I simply use it as one example among several to show that there were a lot of people at that time, including in mainstream institutions like the Fire Department of New York and the major media, and in this case, quite possibly a segment of the FBI who thought that there were explosions involved. Remember that in the article, I also support this by quoting a reporter for USA Today, Jack Kelly. He's on the air on 9-11. He claims to have talked to the FBI, and he says... FBI's working theory, he says, was, quote, at the same time two planes hit the building, there was a car or truck packed with explosives underneath the building, which exploded at the same time and brought both of them down, unquote. Joining me is Jack Kelly. Now, he is a foreign correspondent, war correspondent, and just came back from Israel. He has some information about these attacks. Jack, what can you tell us happened first in New York? Um, apparently what appears to happen was that at the same time two planes hit the building that there that the FBI most likely thinks that there was a car or truck packed with explosives underneath the buildings which also exploded at the same time and brought both of them down now that's the first time we're hearing that so two planes and explosives that were in the building is that correct that is the working theory at this point that is still unconfirmed but that is what the FBI is going on at this point so in other words if that's true Then some people in the FBI were tinkering with a theory which combined the planes that we saw in 9-11 with what happened to World Trade Center in in the bombing of 1993, where in fact there was that kind of explosive in the basement which damaged the building and caused a fair number of casualties. So it's a combination hypothesis. Now, your question is, but surely the FBI wouldn't do that if they were somehow involved in this whole fraud. Why would they draw attention to it? Any answer from me would have to be speculative. I don't know the answer. But my guess, my speculation is that certainly not everybody in the FBI was in on the 9-11 fraud. I don't think that for a moment. There's the need-to-know principle. Some people in the FBI, I do believe, knew what was going on, but I'm guessing the great majority of people in the agency, in the Bureau, did not know. And therefore, it's entirely possible, from my perspective, that somebody, or people in the plural, who were in a position to suggest a name for this, innocently suggested bombing on the assumption that, that there was a bombing involved. You know, they hadn't been in on it. They didn't know what had really happened. Yes, thank you. That that answers my question very well. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you about the 
eyewitness evidence that you highlight particularly. Can I start with the case of Tardio and Zoda? These are two firefighters, Dennis Tardio and Pat Zoda. Now, they have a conversation about the fall of the North Tower, and that's captured on a video made by the Nordet brothers. And this was, I believe this is actually on 9-11 itself. Um, why do you say that that particular conversation is so significant? Well, again, it's not significant by itself. It's significant when it's taken with larger body of evidence. Tardio and Zoda uh, on 9-11 are discussing and describing what they experienced and they're describing it to other firefighters. It's been some years, by the way, since I looked at this, but I'm pretty sure this is on 9-11 itself. If not, it's directly after. It's very soon after. And uh, the two firefighters corroborate each other's accounts. They're in complete agreement in terms of describing what happens. One of them will use his hand in a series of gestures, and he says, you know, um, floor by floor, it starts popping out. And he does these little kind of karate chops. At the same time, he says, boom, 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 all the way down. He's describing, you know, with all this the use of hand gestures, a series of energetic bursts that he perceived in the towers that started up high and went down the towers. And he says it's as if it was detonated, as if there was a detonation. And uh, the, the other firefighter with him says, yeah. And they agree, and they both use the same hand gesture. And they're very animated, aren't they, in their support they're of each other? They're very animated. Yeah. It becomes important to that article that I wrote when I compare it to the other fellow, whose name escapes me at the moment. This is Paul Lemos. Paul Lemos, yeah. So there's Paul Lemos on 9-11, and we know it's somewhere before 5.20 in the afternoon because World Trade Center 7 can be seen in the distance behind him. And he was there to help film a commercial or build a set for a commercial or something. He's describing the towers coming down. And in the full-length version of that interview, he becomes quite emotional. He begins to cry and he can't continue. It was obviously a terrifying and really horrible thing for him to watch. But in the course of it, he uses almost exactly the same hand gestures as... um, Tardio and Zoda, even though these are completely separate videos, they're taken at different places uh, by different filmmakers. So this is independent corroboration. So here we see the little karate chops again. Again, we have a guy saying, you know, it started in the corner and, and it was boom, 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 all the way down. And I stood there and watched these bombs going off. And after I watched a few of them explode, and then I, I ran for my life. By the way, I'm not quoting him exactly, but that's pretty much what he says. Sure, I actually have the quote uh, written down here of this particular one where he's talking about the North Tower. Okay. Um, all of a sudden I looked up and about 20 stories below the fire, I saw from the corner, boom, 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 just like 20 straight hits, just went down, and then I just saw the whole building just went, phew. And as the bombs were going, people just started running, etc. Right. So he's using the term bomb, and later he uses the term explode. And he's describing quite vividly uh, something in almost exactly the same terms as the firefighters. The hand gestures are the same. The gist is the same. Discrete, energetic bursts. And one group is talking about detonating, and the other group is talking about bombs, and they're both direct eyewitnesses. And so that's what we mean by corroboration. Now, it's not just general corroboration. It's not just they heard some loud sounds. 
there are actually quite a few things going on. These are very rich accounts and it's detailed corroboration. Well, let's just take the opportunity to listen to that. So first of all, we'll hear from the firefighters Tardio and Zoda, and then we'll go on to the um, set director, Paul Lemos. We made it outside, we made it about a block. We made it at least two blocks, two blocks. and we started running. Floor by floor, it started popping out. It was like, it was if, if they had detonated. Dead, yeah, dead, detonated. If they were planned to yeah. take down a building. Boom, 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 boom. All the way down. I was watching ran. it and running. Ran. Just ran up west. And then you just saw the, this cloud of shit chasing you down. Could not run it. Could not run it. So what'd you do? I jumped behind I a battalion car, I hit under the car, I just went and died. Can you tell us your name? Uh, my name's Paul Lemos. And, and what are you doing down here? What do you do? Um, I've been here the last three days uh, putting up a, a, a stage and a set for a company out of Quebec. They were uh, advertising their, their city. Okay. And what did you see happen? Um, I saw... Where were you when it happened? Well, what happened was I was supposed to be at work at 9 o'clock. I got here about 10 till, and as I was coming out of the subway below the World Trade Center, I got to the top, and somebody screamed, uh, screamed some, there's a, I heard a big boom, and somebody screamed, uh, bomb, and then everybody started running down the escalators, and I kind of held my position, and I saw through the glass windows a bunch of uh, debris falling from the sky, and in between the center, there's like a big globe. It's a, it's a courtyard with a stage, and I just saw stuff crashing down, and I didn't know what it was. So I, I, as everybody was running out, I was by myself. I went outside, and I looked up, and the World Trade Center was on fire. And it was 90, they, 90 I found out later, it was like 96 flights high, and it was all this smoke. And um, I started to see people dropping out. You, you, which, which building were you running out of? I was running out of, um, well, the, the subway stations are directly underneath. The, the World Trade Centers, each tower. So you were inside the. World I was underneath the tower. I was underneath. I was at the basement of the Trade Center when the explosion happened. And then when I came out, I looked up. Well, I wasn't in the basement. I was next door to it. I looked up and I saw it. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw what I thought was a plane. I found out later it was. I saw something hit the second tower. And when I saw that, it just was everything rumbled. And I saw all this fire just shoot out in the sky and stuff started just falling like like it was raining and I I was by myself and I just ran and I and I, I held underneath the scaffold and I just started throwing metal and, and rock and tons of glass just falling from the sky and I was frightened and um, I looked around and the police officer was running by because I, I saw what I thought was a person and I said sir I just saw somebody fall he goes there, there's a lot of people jumping out right now and I said, oh my God. So he said, get over here. So he walked me across the street to that American Express building. And I sat there. And as I was sitting there, I looked up and uh, they were trying to get everything in control. It was a uh, fire department. Everybody was there. And uh, I started seeing people um, just... Uh, they started jumping out of the window, like at the 96 floors. They just started... Uh, one at a time from different parts of the building. I just started seeing people just drop, drop, and drop. And uh, I must have counted like 30 or 40 people, you know? And uh, I had just gone to it, so I knew that they needed water. And um, I stood there for a few minutes, and then uh, I don't know how much time went by. All of a sudden, I looked up, and about 20 stories below, at least that's what it looked like to me, about 75 flights up below the fire, I saw from the corner, boom, 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 boom. Just like 20 straight hits just went down and then I just saw the whole 
the whole building just went and as the bombs were gone people just started running and I sat there and watched a few of them explode and then I just turned around and I just started running for my life because at that point World Trade Center was coming right down, right above us. And everybody ran as fast as they possibly could. Yeah, I just uh, noticed actually from that particular quote there by Paul Lebos, he talks about these things coming from the corner. And I was reminded of David Chandler, the physicist's analysis of the North Tower collapse. And he draws attention to the corner as well. And he notices an ejection um, directly from the corner where there are no windows. And um, he says that precludes the possibility of a pressure ejection at that point. So I'm just wondering, actually, when looking at that David Chandler analysis there, whether we're actually seeing one of the very explosive booms that uh, Lemos describes. Oh, I absolutely agree. We have uh, very clear shots of ejections from the North Tower uh, and from the corners, which is what Lemos is talking about. In fact, um, there's a whole series of them that come from the corner, and David is quite right. Some of them clearly come right from the aluminum cladding there. They blow open the corner. They're not coming from the windows. You know, really, we can study these quite carefully. Years ago, I did that. You, you know, it's quite easy to figure out how long some of these ejections are. Um, we know how many frames per second. We know how big the building was. So we can work out the velocity and the acceleration of these ejections. We can study them in some detail. And so, yeah, uh, that is an example of using one kind of evidence, um, video recordings, and also still photographs, to corroborate what this eyewitness or these eyewitnesses in the plural are saying. And in that uh, Lemos interview, you you draw attention to his remark that he was approached by an architect who was brought on the scene by the authorities, who told him that well, what he'd witnessed was actually not explosions, which I must admit that does seem a very odd thing to be told. No, 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 you didn't see what you thought you saw. The last one was the Trade Center itself, this first one here, ah. where it just it started. Uh, now, they told me afterwards it wasn't explosions. I was talking to one of the architects that they pulled in because he was talking to me about it. He said, what did you see? I said, I saw the fire, and I, when I looked up, I saw around the 70, because the fire was on the 96th floor, so I looked down, and it, it happened probably 70, 75, I can't be specific, I looked and I could see the corner, and it just started going pop, it just started going boom, 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 and he goes, how fast? I go, like, firecrackers. <laughs> so, I mean, w- what would you say is the significance of that rather odd remark? Well, of course, I suppose it's always possible that, that this uh, so-called architect was innocent, and that everybody was just in the in the chaos of things, and the so-called fog of war. A bunch of people, uh, you know, with too much adrenaline in their systems were running around coming up with their own harebrained theories as to why the buildings came down. So that would be the innocent hypothesis. I suspect the innocent hypothesis is probably wrong. I suspect that uh, people who were involved in, in creating this fraud brought people like this so-called architect who may or may not have been an architect. I mean, how do we know? They brought this guy. I'm sorry, what were we going to say, Julian? No, so I was agreeing. Yes, how do we know? I just said he's an architect because that's what's said. But yes, quite. We have no way of knowing. Yeah, so we don't know who the guy is. He's on the scene because he's brought into the scene. He probably wasn't there until he was brought in. So there's no reason to believe he was an eyewitness himself. He certainly didn't uh, study photos and videos. He didn't sample the the dust. He couldn't possibly have studied the structure of the building and the nature of the collapses 
at that point in the day to know why they came down. So what business does he have in a, in a sense contaminating the crime scene and coming up to an eyewitness and saying you didn't perceive what you think you perceived? I mean, that's just such bad procedure that it makes me wonder whether this isn't quite a deliberate attempt to bring people in with so-called credentials, I'm an architect, and who can begin taking the wind out of the sails of eyewitnesses and getting them to disbelieve what they themselves perceived. Yeah, and it actually reminds me of another very strange uh, event where there's a video of somebody being interviewed, obviously, around that time, and uh, they say something like, oh, yeah, a plane came out of nowhere uh, right into the side of the Twin Towers, uh, uh, exploded through the other side, um, then I witnessed you know, both the towers collapse, um, one first, then the other, and then he, he adds this, almost as if it's scripted, mostly due to structural failure because the fires were just too intense. <laughs> come out of nowhere and just scream right into the side of the twin tower exploding through the other side and then i witnessed both towers collapse one first and then the second mostly due to structural failure because the fire was just too intense i mean i can't prove it's scripted but when you hear it it does feel like that yeah you should uh, you should include him he's often called harley man i don't remember whether he has a harley davidson t-shirt or what uh but he is a very very fishy individual, you know, because he's already got his, his hypothesis. No, there's nothing he could have possibly seen which could lead him to know that it was structural failure. Bear in mind that Lemos, or Lemos, however you pronounce it, doesn't really have a collapse hypothesis. He's just telling us what he perceived or what he thought he perceived, which is exactly what an eyewitness should do. Um, one of the questions I have about these booms and pops is that um, they don't seem to be audible in video footage of these events. I mean, not not unambiguously so, anyway. Um, turning back to the video, the, the Burkitt Report, a very long video, um, there seem to be more of a, a rumble as the tower comes down there. And that seems to be the case with many of the videos that I've seen, a sort of gathering rumble as the collapses happen. Um, now, I did come across a video of the South Tower collapse that at least purported to give evidence of pops. And when you listen to that, they are very clear. It's really pop, 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 matching the descriptions that have been given. But there are other versions of that video that don't have that. They just have the rumbling sound. And as I say, the, the Burkitt video, which is you know, it's very, very close to the event, it's, it's very extended, doesn't have the pops. Uh, well, at least there might be the slightest suggestion of slight booming in in the background but it's not unambiguous at all um so that makes me wonder whether the the very good example video of the pop 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 actually is something that's been doctored i don't know what you think about that um what do you reckon well first of all you're quite right that there are many videos of the destruction of the towers i don't like to call it collapse because i think destruction is a better term there are many videos of the destruction of the towers and we can't hear anything of significance, actually. We often just hear people screaming or whatever. And when we do hear something, it's often a great roar. Now, there's nothing the matter with uh, us hearing a roar because there was a roar. I actually, in a different article, collected a whole bunch of evidence. I can show that to you. What it sounded like to people when the towers were coming down, there was an, it's often described as an enormous roar, uh, the term rumble is frequently used, especially because the ground was shaking under their feet. So the other discrete explosion sounds that I talk about in the article you're thinking about here, that we're discussing here, 
are not in competition with those sounds. They were in amongst them. You don't hear them in too many videos, although you do hear them in a number. Now, if you look at any of the work I've done, you'll notice that I don't use them. I mean, I, even when I'm giving a talk, I will very seldom play videos in which you can hear these pops for the simple reason that it is, uh, as far as I can tell, quite easy to fake audio tracks. You can fake them in either direction. You could add the pops, but of course you could also erase the pops and uh, replace them with a general roar, depending on what, what your motivation was. And perhaps if I were an expert in uh, audio stuff, I could sort it all out, but I'm not. And so I just don't use audio track. I, I, I don't say, okay, everybody, let's listen to this, because I don't know which are the authentic and which are the in inauthentic. But it's quite clear from the eyewitness accounts that all of these were going on. That's why I said some people mistake the beginning of the collapse for a plane coming very close. This is a tremendous roar. Other people say it was like being right very, very close to a train where there's both roar and rumble. But then in the midst, in the midst of all this are these accounts of discrete explosions, which are even sometimes described as being like gunshots. And, and we can hear those sounds without question on some of these soundtracks. So the particular soundtrack that you're talking about on the famous firefighter video, or at least I think that's the one you're talking about, mm -hmm. has a couple of different versions, one in which we hear the discrete pops and one of which it's a generalized roar. Uh, I believe the one with the discrete pops is the older and more authentic one, but I can't prove that, so I don't make a big deal out of it. the pops could have been removed for the purposes of cover-up or added just maliciously, um, or it could have been added to make people think, you know, look at these ridiculous 9-11 truthers, they add these sorts of things. That's another way of looking at it. Well, yeah, and so the best thing is to not speculate unless you have an expertise in that area. We don't need the soundtrack. That's one of the purposes of having eyewitness accounts. Mm -hmm. For example, if you've got a firefighter who has... For years, he's fought fires in high-rises in New York City, and he knows all about the kinds of explosions that normally, or at least that very frequently, accompany fires. And yet, in this case, it's very clear to him that that's not what's going on, and that's why he'll use a term like bomb to describe what he perceived. That's an important account. Yeah, in a way, that brings me on to a question I wanted to ask you about the status of these as controlled demolitions. Because, you know, you acknowledge that Tardio, uh, Zoda and Lemos 
what they describe were not conventional controlled demolitions, certainly, but rather they were deceptive controlled demolitions. So this is the idea, I presume, that the, you know, if the buildings were indeed brought down by controlled demolition, then the, the manner in which that was done would need to have been disguised to the maximum extent so as to avoid suspicion. That's the idea. But, I mean, do we run into difficulties here? Because I've heard people say things like, you know, if what these people witnessed that day did not conform to a conventional controlled demolition, then... Were these people right in thinking it was controlled demolition at all? Well, we have, uh, I mean, it's a good question, and we have a couple of ways we can uh, wander into mistake and foolishness here. One way would be to, for me to say, um, well, you know, it's a, it was a covert operation, so obviously it wasn't a norm, normal controlled demolition. <laughs> it wouldn't have been very covert. So therefore... Uh, the very fact that somebody doesn't hear sound or doesn't experience anything is proof. <laughs> it's evidence <laughs> that this was a controlled demolition by covert means. So that would be absurd, obviously. Okay, That would be one way to make a mistake. Uh, the other way to go, though, would be like your uh, kind of debunkers here and would be to say, oh, well, if it, if it wasn't a regular controlled demolition, then, you know, let's just dismiss it somehow. Because obviously it wasn't a regular controlled demolition for the reasons we've both just given. This was a secret operation. It couldn't look like one. So we're stuck in between these possible absurdities, and we, we have to proceed carefully. So what do we do? We use all the major sources of evidence we can. There are three major categories. One is, and I'm talking here about direct evidence, not circumstantial evidence, so we've got eyewitness evidence, we've got physical evidence of various sorts, which we could get into if you like, and then we've got what I'm calling representational evidence, all the recordings, video, photographic. So we take it all, we put it together, and we say, well, what, what sort of thing would we expect, you know, would be the case if these were covert demolitions? Well, they might not be able to entirely disguise the materials they use to bring down the building. So let's look, sift through the dust and see if we can find any evidence of explosives or incendiaries or anything in between. Any kind of exotic material that shouldn't be there that might have brought them down. Let's look also through the dust for evidence of other things like exceptionally high temperatures, which shouldn't be there. Temperatures way, way above uh, office fires and burning jet fuel and that sort of thing. See if we can find that. And of course, you know perfectly well what we find in both those cases. We do find evidence of demolition through both those means. But then, uh, what would we expect to see on, on that video? Well, if we're really careful, we might find that even if they're trying to disguise them, there might be violent ejections of debris and material from the buildings as they come down. Well, there they are. Wow, how interesting. Um, and how about eyewitnesses? Well, what did they hear? What did they see? What did they feel? Here's a guy who says he heard a massive explosion so that, uh, you know, he could barely hear afterwards. He says it was a, like a giant firecracker and it, it threw him through the air for about 40 feet. He landed on his hands and knees. Well, that's interesting. It certainly sounds like an explosion and, and so on and so forth. Mm. Because as I argue at several points, but especially in that article, uh, there are ways of telling if something is an explosion or something that mimics an explosion. And there are ways of distinguishing uh, an explosion that is likely connected with controlled demolition 
from an innocent explosion such as you would expect to find in a fire. There are ways to do that, and that's what I've tried to do in that article. Yes, as you say, it sort of pushes us into the middle between these extremes. So, I mean, you could turn it on its head, couldn't you? And you could say, well, what would you expect to witness if it was, in fact, a normal controlled demolition? Well, we don't see that. What would you expect to see if it was a natural collapse of some sort? And there are anomalies there. So it, even that, from looking at the other way, drives us into considering the middle position. That's right. And there is a whole other way of approaching it, which I didn't really take in that article, but which is perfectly legitimate. And that is where you say, well, look, I mean, we have to, any decent researcher looks for patterns. So these are massive steel frame skyscrapers and they are in perfectly good shape until they're hit by planes and according to the closest studies they're still in perfectly good shape after they're hit by the planes underneath the plane impact, right? I mean it's not as if they were broken a major uh, columns at their base or anything of the sort. So then we ask the question in buildings of this sort that have come down quickly and completely, what was the mechanism? And the answer is, every time, it was a controlled demolition. And in most of those cases, the controlled demolition was achieved through planted explosives in the vast majority. So that isn't like an hypothesis that's out there in some wilderness, it's some bizarre thing that we search for. It is the first hypothesis you would bring to the table. These buildings have come down, and these buildings don't come down. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And there's no good reason why they should come down just from being hit by planes. They were designed to be hit by planes. We saw the plane impact. We saw the big holes in the top. So what? The towers were still perfectly intact and very strong beneath plane impact. How on earth could they have been pulverized in a matter of 14 seconds? You know? Yes, and one would have been bad enough, but two. And then, of course, the third one, it becomes right. a stretch matters <laughs> to breaking point, really. Um, one of the eyewitnesses you very much highlight in your piece is Sue Keane. And I have to say, I find her testimony quite striking, actually. She was, I understand, a police officer at the scene, but she'd received military and, indeed, explosive training earlier in her career. Can you tell us what her testimony was, why that was so significant? Right. When I was writing that talk, I thought that I wanted to comment on objections that people make, which I had never commented on before in anything I'd written. Two different sorts, main sorts of objections. There are people who say, okay, there may have been explosions, but, but that doesn't mean it was controlled demolition. So I said a few things about that. But there are also other people who say... Um, well, how do we even know they were explosions? I mean, there were so what? There were some people who heard some stuff, some booms, uh, and they they suggest any number of things that it might have been. It might have been columns snapping. It might have been bodies falling. It might have been elevators coming down. And one uh, gentleman suggests sonic booms. So I thought, well, let's let's think about how we would make the case for this being explosions. And I decided to take this one woman. Sue Keen, who was in the Port Authority Police Department. And as you said, she'd been an officer for some years, and prior to that she'd been in the U.S. Army. And she knew far more about explosions than most of us and had experienced them and had been taught how to react to them. So I thought, let's analyze her very rich eyewitness account. And in order to do that, I took uh, a book by a former member of the FBI, James Thurman. He wrote a book called Practical Bomb Scene Investigation. 
and he listed the characteristics that an investigator ought to know about, characteristics of explosions. And um, he came up with a list of about six major characteristics. And I was able to find all six characteristics in Sue Kane's testimony. So that's why I use it. I use it very briefly in the article, but it's important. So the first, I don't know, do you want me to go through the six? Uh, yes, would you actually? Would you say it's brief, but you do actually include the, the document, don't you, in the, in the paper? I do. Yeah. Uh, Sue Keane was interviewed at least, well, there were at least two cases in which she gave her testimony. One was uh, for a book, Women at Ground Zero, which was written quite shortly after 9-11. And that's a fairly extensive account she gives. And the second one is her official handwritten report for the Port Authority Police Department. And that's a page of that I include in my article because, I mean, this is what we mean by primary sources. You don't have to depend upon me. You look at her own handwriting, her own misspellings. And, yeah. and, yeah. and this, is a, this is a brave, traumatized person who was there on the day. So, okay, well, I'll just briefly tell you what the six, uh, the six characteristics then of explosion were. The first is, of course, the sound, characteristic sound of explosion. So here's what Sue Keen says. A couple of minutes later, it sounded like bombs going off. That's when the explosions happened. Okay, well, so that's uh, auditory evidence. The second characteristic is what's called positive blast pressure. So the explosive substance or device goes off and creates this pressure wave, which travels rapidly outward, typically breaks glass and you know windows and hurls people around. Uh, it can even knock down structures if they're close enough and so on and so forth. So that's the positive blast pressure phase. Here's what Sue Keen says. Quote, the windows blew in. We all got thrown. Or again, she says, each one of those explosions picked me up and threw me. End of quote. Well, I mean, you know, I'm interrupting the account here, but obviously we're not talking about bodies falling, we're not talking about columns breaking or elevators falling, something else going on here. Point three, partial vacuum during positive blast pressure phase. So in a, an explosion, the pressure wave travels outward and there is a thinning and attenuation of the air near the point of the blast a partial vacuum is temporarily created. So what does Sue Keen say? Quote, there was this incredible rush of air and it literally sucked the breath out of my lungs, end of quote. And you can see that again corroborated in her handwritten report, report on the next page where it says, another explosion, massive again, sucking the air out of your lungs. Okay, again, what on earth could that be if it's not an explosion? Then we have point four, negative blast pressure phase. So the, the blast pressure has traveled rapidly outward. It's breaking things, knocking things over. There's a partial vacuum at the point of uh, where the blast originally took place. And as they used to say, nature abhors a vacuum, meaning essentially that there will be a tendency for nature to stabilize the air pressure. So after the original phase where things are being pushed outward, there will be an inrushing, uh, a backrushing 
of air to fill up the partial vacuum. And sometimes in an explosion, Thurman tells us, objects that were blown out initially will to some extent be dragged backward toward the actual original blast area. The second phase, this negative blast pressure phase, will not be as strong, but there will often be much evidence of it. So what does Sue Keen say? Quote, everything went out of me with this massive wind. Stuff was just flying past. That's where she's talking about the positive phase. But then she goes on, then it stopped and got really quiet. And then everything came back at us. I could breathe at this point, but now I was sucking all this stuff in. It was almost like a backdraft. It sounded like a tornado, end of quote. Then we go on to number five, which is the incendiary or thermal effect. In other words, there will typically be heat with an explosion. Here's Sue Keen talking. He threw me under the hose. I think she's talking about a firefighter at this point. He threw me under the hose, which in a way felt great because I didn't realize until then that my skin was actually burning. I had burn marks, not like you'd have from a fire, but my face was all red, my chest was red. End of quote. And then finally, number six, and this is one we all know, fragmentation and shrapnel. And bear in mind that uh, that's one of the things that explosions typically do. They break things. And if you have a bomb that's designed specifically for that effect, you know, massive destruction, it will have often a bomb casing or it'll have objects inside the casing uh, which will fragment and go out and injure people and so on. But you can also have inadvertent fragmenting where something blows up a building and all kinds of things are uh, fragmented. So here's what Sue Keen's stuff says. Uh, there was stuff coming out of my body uh, like you wouldn't believe. She's talking about afterwards. It was like shrapnel. It's still coming out. In other words, every day she finds more little fragments of things in her body. She has to remove. So that's why I gave Sue Keen's report. I thought here is a non-naive person who knows what explosions are like. And she's going through and she's describing what she went through and she's hitting all the six major characteristics of an explosion. Yeah, that is really striking when I, I saw that and you drew attention to that. Would it be okay, do you think, for me to uh, reproduce that at the website so that people can read that? I'd be quite happy to do that, yeah. And uh, if you'd mm-hmm. like, I could probably find her original. If, if that copy that you have isn't good enough, I might be able to find another copy is my point. Right, that would be great. And could I actually reproduce your article at the website? Oh, yeah, sure. Good, because I know that a lot of people do look through at the uh, show notes uh, and check things out like that. So I do like to include a lot, a lot of information to back up what's been said. So that would be brilliant. Um, in your earlier article that you mentioned before, the 118 Witnesses, the Firefighters' Testimony to Explosions in the Twin Towers, that was your 2006 piece that was published in the Journal of 9-11 Studies. You do make mention of eyewitness testimony of explosions in the lobby of the South Tower. And of course, we have the video testimony of firefighters on the day saying that uh, one of the lobbies was destroyed uh, in what they described as secondary explosions. And related to this, we have the janitor, William Rodriguez, uh, testimony of explosions in the basement of the North Tower. So I'm just wondering why you didn't choose to major on those kind of testimonies in your presentation. Well, I think that somebody needs to do something like what I've done Uh, in which they talk about earlier explosions in the towers. I didn't want to do an article in which they're all kind of promiscuously uh, mixed up because I think they had somewhat different functions. So I decided to concentrate on the explosions that happened right at the beginning of the destruction of the towers 
and moving on a little bit into that as the towers are being destroyed. Uh, not because I don't think there weren't other explosions. I think there were. But that evidence has to be considered in its own right and sorted out and added up. And there are a number of kind of rough collections, but I don't know of anybody who's done it really, really carefully. So that's, I think of it as a separate, although complementary project. Right. I'd like to throw out you a, a few objections, um, just playing devil's advocate, of course. And the, the reason for that is, you know, to bring things out rather than to <laughs> just try to contradict what you're saying. Sure. Um, so uh, one objection, and you did mention this, and this is the idea that uh, maybe the eyewitnesses do actually reasonably accurately report what they saw and what they heard. But nevertheless, there might still be alternative explanations for the explosions themselves. So this could be gas, it could be electricity, it could be liquid vaporizing spontaneously, these kinds of things. So why is it that those kinds of alternatives, in your view, are not really tenable? Well, first of all, we shouldn't let ourselves get too offhand and too general about those kinds of explosions, as you put it. We should try and be as precise as we can about what kind of explosions happen in buildings of this kind. And then we, we examine them and we see whether that's what it could be. So when I was composing this article, or actually before that, when I was doing this research, I looked at the most authoritative sources that are put out for practical guidance in the field to firefighters and to people who are inspecting buildings afterwards. And I looked at what they described as the major kinds of explosions that can occur. And there aren't really that many. They are four. One is BLEVE, B-L-E-V-E, which stands for Boiling Liquid Expanding Vapor Explosions like when a boiler explodes. The next is electrical explosions. The third is smoke explosions, so-called. And the fourth is combustion explosions, and that's where you would have natural gas. It's also where, in the case of the World Trade Center, someone might hypothesize that it was jet fuel uh, that was blowing up. That would be a combustion explosion. So then, if, if those are the alternative possibilities, you have to read about each one of them and see what characterizes them. And then you have to see what the eyewitnesses describe, and also what we see through physical evidence, and sort out whether it could be either one of these kinds of explosions or a combination of them. And I concluded that it couldn't be either one or a combination of them. And the three main reasons I give are what I call identification, power, and pattern. Identification means we had a whole bunch of firefighters on the scene on 9-11, and not just firefighters, other first responders, a lot of police. And you would think if, especially the firefighters, were encountering ordinary types of explosions, that they would say so. And they would say, well, then there was we barely get out of there because it was a massive smoke explosion. Or we were there shortly after the plane struck and the uh, jet fuel had gathered and it blew up. Or there were boilers exploding or whatever. In other words, they would identify it or would at least try to identify it as one of these standard sorts of explosions. And they don't, with very few exceptions, they don't. They either portray it as mysterious or they use terms like bomb. And don't forget they're 
32 eyewitnesses in my list there, most of whom are firefighters, who use the term bomb. So clearly these very experienced, knowledgeable people on the day are not identifying it as what some people uh, who weren't on the scene are trying to claim it was. It detonated, in fact. That's right. Detonation, terms like that. Um, the second thing, so I said identification, power, and pattern. Power, the second point, just has to do with what people felt they perceived. Many of them clearly thought that these explosions they were witnessing were tearing the building to pieces. This is very clear from both the Tardio uh, video clip and the Lemos video clip, and from many, many other witnesses. Some of them say the whole top uh, of the tower blew up, and so on. So then you look at these four kinds of explosions that customarily occur in buildings of this kind, and none of them has anywhere near the power to do that. Electrical explosions? No way. Smoke explosions? No. Combustion explosions, even if there was something uh, appropriate there to do it, no. And Blevy, no. In other words, a couple of these kinds of explosions, like Blevy's and and, uh, combustion explosions, can under some circumstances uh, destroy buildings, typically wood frame houses and so on. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about two enormous, very strong steel frame skyscrapers. And none of these four kinds of explosions, even in combination, could do what we see being done to those towers. So if the witnesses are right and these explosions are tearing these buildings apart, then uh, we can be quite certain it's not these kinds of explosions. And the third reason we know it's not these innocent-type explosions is, is what I call pattern. Yes, you could have an explosion going off here. You could have one going off there. But you wouldn't have what these eyewitnesses are talking about, which is a very well-timed series of explosions starting high and going down. Boom, 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 with the appropriate cone-shaped point source ejections that we clearly see on the videos. No, none of them uh, would produce this. And that's why uh, as soon as we have concluded that we're dealing with explosions here, we have no choice once we see and hear about the patterns, but to conclude that these were explosives and that they were planted. So what about NIST's explanation? This is the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, of course, tasked with investigating these collapses. So they suggest that uh, this was air pressure ejections. We've already been talking about this before, haven't we, where we see these massive ejections coming out from the corner of the building as uh, the North Tower is coming down. We see the ejections coming out and then the collapse horizon following. So why do you think that that isn't uh, an adequate explanation for what's going on? Yes, well, of course, the NIST researchers, National Institute of Standards and Technology researchers that produced the final and supposedly authoritative account of the uh, destruction of the towers couldn't completely ignore and evade the issue of these ejections. I mean, they've been caught very clearly in still photographs and on video and through eyewitnesses. And, you know, people ask them about them, how do you explain this? So they came up with a hypothesis which seemed initially as if it might make sense uh, because one of the first hypotheses of why the buildings came down or how they came down was the um, so-called pancake hypothesis, meaning that the internal floors of the building 
I shouldn't call them internal. They were directly connected to the exterior columns, but the floors came loose. The, the attachments, the things holding them to the columns came loose. And, you know, let you picture one floor falling and hitting another floor, and then now you've got the weight of two floors, and they come down and hit and knock the other one loose, and this is a so-called pancaking effect, which goes all the way down the building. Well, I mean, you can sort of picture in your mind these flat floors, and, and you might want to, we might try rather naively picturing them as extending all the way across from one side of the building to the other without any major apertures in the middle, and that when they come down, it's like a piston inside a cylinder. And so, therefore, they are going to uh, push out the air rapidly. And where's the air going to come? Well, it's going to come out of the windows in the trade center. And it'll, you know, because the buildings are being destroyed at that point, there'll be a lot of dust in it. And it'll look like, uh, well, it will be uh, a dust ejection from a window. And, and, and also that would seem to explain the sound of the, the successive booms, perhaps the floors hitting each other. Right, uh, which they claimed it did. Boom, 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 boom. Pancaking floors. Well, there were a number of problems there. Um, even if that hypothesis had worked to explain the sounds and the ejections, it was of no use because the pancake hypothesis had nothing to support it and a great deal to go against it. And so the National Institute of Standards and Technology threw it out. And in their final report, uh, they have an entirely different hypothesis for how the buildings came down. And they said quite explicitly later that they rejected the pancake hypothesis. So at that point, they really don't have anything going for them. Now, they did their best, or at least uh, Shyam Sundar, lead investigator of NIST, when questioned about this, he did his best to sort of try and make the piston hypothesis fit with their more recent collapse hypothesis, so that somehow the top part of the building, which comes loose from the part below it, because it, you know there's plane impact and damage, and that top part of the building comes down like a sledgehammer on the rest of the building, and somehow acts as a piston, you know, and the rest of the building somehow is supposedly like a cylinder. So you have a piston still inside a cylinder, which, you know, and the, the air pressure builds up as it goes down and the ejections come out and so on. That's the best he could do, and it's hopeless. It's just a hopeless hypothesis because the top part of the building is not like a piston at all. It just does not resemble a piston in any significant respect. It's completely uh, destroyed and blown to smithereens very quickly in the uh, destruction of the building. And it becomes more like a cloud of matter, uh, or if you like, um, it's pulverized material that's flowing uh, in the building. Most of it flows outside the building, but undoubtedly some of it flowed inside. It's not a piston. Secondly, there's no cylinder. The buildings were not hermetically sealed by any in any sense. The required pressure would not have built up, and so on. There, there are a number of uh, and there's about six major objections to that hypothesis. If any reader is sorry, any listener is seriously interested in this, there's an article by Kevin Ryan, my co-editor at the Journal of 9/11 Studies. He wrote this in 2007, and you can find it online in the Journal of 9/11 Studies. It's called. High-velocity bursts of debris from point-like sources in the WTC towers. That's Kevin Ryan, 2007. 
And it's an excellent article. I mean, just destroys the NIST hypothesis. Uh, the gist is that they have a piston hypothesis, and there's no piston. They have um, a cylinder hypothesis, and there's no cylinder. And every major proposal or implication of their hypothesis, when we actually test it, turns out to be wrong. Mm. So really, the air pressure ejection theory is an old theory and depends upon the pancake theory which has been rejected. That's correct. And it's disconfirmed anyway by what we said earlier with the David Chandler analysis where you have an ejection coming through the framework of the building itself. Yes, it's disconfirmed by many things, as Kevin Pine points out. I mean, it's not as if the pancake theory was adequate. It isn't. If the pancake theory had explained these ejections, the air pressure should have increased as the so-called piston came down through the cylinder, and the uh, ejections at the bottom should be more uh, rapid and forceful than the ejections that we see at the top of the tower when the collapse first begins. But when we measure them, we find no such thing. There is no appreciable difference in the velocity between the highest ejections and the lowest ones. And the first ejections, in fact, come rushing out before there, as Kevin points out, before any opportunity for the building up of significant air pressure even happens. So pancake or no pancake, um, in neither case does this work. Yes, I will link to that article and uh, direct people, of course, to the show notes to look that up. Um, at the end of your presentation, you talk about NIST and the 9-11 Commission, and so that's what I want to end with, really. Mm. I agree with you. It's highly suspicious that the 9-11 Commission and NIST reports make virtually no mention of eyewitness evidence. I mean, the 9-11 Commission just has a, a fragmentary and kind of dismissive remark uh, that you mentioned, and uh, NIST says nothing about eyewitness evidence. Now, I agree, that does seem very suspicious. It, right. it looks like they didn't want to go there, frankly. Um, right. But could it be argued that they weren't interested in eyewitness evidence because that really was not their remit? You know, that wasn't... Hmm. They were interested in technical and, and, and hard facts. And I know, you know, we can defend eyewitness ev evidence as being not as soft as is often thought. But, I mean, you, you said yourself, it's somewhere in the middle between hard and soft. Hmm. So, so was good. it just too soft for their remit? <laughs> yeah, yes, I think a lot of people assume that, but it's not true. Uh, both the 9-11 Commission and the National Institute of Standards and Technology made great use of eyewitness evidence in the production of their reports. And in my article, I give examples of where NIST uh, is quite proud of the various types of sophisticated interviews that they gave. And they used, both of them use eyewitness evidence to establish certain things. For example, 9-11 Commission, well, this is true of NIST as well. They're, they're interested in how people got out of the building and, you know, how, you know, were things marked properly? Could we improve the buildings in the future? And they use eyewitness evidence. In fact, ironically, uh, they sometimes even use the firefighters' oral histories. So, I mean, they were very well aware of, the, uh, of that body of material. But suddenly, when it comes to figuring out how the, why the buildings came down, they go silent. And as you mentioned, it's especially true of NIST. They just don't go there at all. It's as if there are no eyewitnesses who perceived explosions in the buildings, even though NIST had access to all the same materials that I used. So um, what sense do we make of it? Well, I say in the article, it, it could just be uh, outrageous incompetence. Or it could be somebody's involved in the cover-up. But either way, it shows that these investigations are um, grossly flawed and we need to start over. Yeah, so it's uh, either selective deafness or 
congenital deafness? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So we talked about, you know, so much in this uh, interview here. It's difficult to sort of collect it all together, but that's what I'm going to ask you, if I may, to do. If you were to spell out a conclusion that draws this all together, what would you say these considerations reveal to us overall? How would you summarize that? Well, I suppose I would say that right from the beginning, early in the day on 9-11, there were two hypotheses that were put forward two major sets of hypotheses to explain why the Twin Towers came down. Um, there was the hypothesis that they'd been in some sense blown up, and there was the hypothesis that it was kind of a natural collapse through structural failure caused by fire and plane impact, and that these hypotheses have had their champions from that day to the present day, and that in trying to sort out which one is, is better, we use all the standard methods of research and of scientific investigation that we would use for anything else. We look at all the different kinds of evidence, from the circumstantial to direct. And among direct, I've, I've discussed three different kinds, one of which is eyewitness evidence. We absolutely must use it. And we, when we do use it, we find that there are many eyewitnesses, that their reports are often very detailed and convincing that they're compatible with the explosion hypothesis and not compatible with the non-explosion hypothesis. We therefore say we've got a very strong case that these buildings were brought down to a controlled demolition, that it had to be an inside job, and that the global war on terror is a fraud. Well, Dr. McQueen, it has been, as it was last time, fascinating speaking with you. And uh, I do hope that people will, once having listened to this interview, go and look at the show notes and also consider how what you've said today fits with many of the other things that maybe people have been looking into with regarding 9-11. And uh, this uh, is certainly an area which I think complements the other interviews that we've done here on The Mind Renewed. Um, I, of course, as I did at the beginning of the show, do direct people to your book, which we talked about last time, the 2000. 2001 Anthrax Deception. I highly recommend that everybody uh, gets that and reads that. Now, I think some people might be thinking, well, how can we find out more about uh, Dr. McQueen's work? And I understand that you don't have a website. Is that right? Um, <laughs> is that correct? I guess I'm very old fashioned. <laughs> I don't have a website. I don't have a blog. You know, I'm not on yeah. Facebook. I'm sorry. Uh, I guess if people simply do a kind of uh, search on the internet, they can find a number of talks and articles by me, and that's probably the best they can do right now. The best single source for your work would be the Journal of 9-11 Studies, I understand. Right. Good. So I will certainly link to that. And, uh, of course, any of the other sources uh, that we've been talking about today, I will link to those as well. Uh, so thank you very much again, Dr. McQueen, for joining us. It's been brilliant speaking to you. Well, thank you, Julian. That's a really uh, thorough exhaustive and exhausting interview <laughs> <laughs> i'm so so sorry to to do that to you i understand that your your uh, birthday is it in uh, a few days and if so may i wish you many happy returns of the day well thank you i hope i hope you're right that i'll be with us for a while <laughs> lovely okay thank you again all right bye-bye bye-bye